Nice to be back, as always. You guys, you really should think about letting the speakers go first, because it's a hard acts to follow, you know? <laughs> Sit there scribbling, oh, God, oh. So. Anyway, it's nice to be here in a constitutional county after spending so much time in, spending so much time in Grand Rapids, where this is a free-for-all, you know? <laughs> so, okay. Good, so um, I've got one ah uh, moment too, maybe, maybe, we'll see. Um, I don't wanna steal any thunder, sorry. I got a 15-year-old who's becoming a singer-songwriter, uh, like every other 15-year-old. <laughs> um, but the powers that be at C3 have uh, agreed to indulge us, and so I'm coming back out to speak on the sacred and profane, July 16th, and Sonia, my 15-year-old, is in charge of the music that day, so. She would hate this so much. <laughs> okay, here we go. So I understand your new theme, officially to be rolled out later this month, is we have questions. And that tagline, speaking of billboards, that tagline will be on billboards um, throughout the state or county. So I'm jumping the gun on that particular theme today, uh, but when I asked, look, do you mind if I kind of get a head start on that? Again, the powers that be said, look, wild, you pretty much do and say whatever you want when you come out. So, you know, like, <laughs> whatever, you know? Um, you know, sometimes it's helpful to be seen as who you are and sometimes less so. so. <laughs> All right, so I sup I'm supposing that you're contrasting yourselves um, with this We Have Questions campaign with those institutions, places, or people, uh, religious or otherwise, who have definitive answers and are quite sure of those answers. And those places, C3, thanks, uh, are saying to their followers, look, you need not live in ambiguity you not need live in unresolved paradox. You need not have sleepless nights. You need not live in anxiety-provoking existential dread alone in a hostile world, all alone, while you, C3, on the other hand, <laughs> are saying, hey, maybe a little existential dread's not such a bad thing once in a while. Okay. Uh, I'm teasing a little bit, but actually it's a great thing if you wanted to sum up my life in three words. Uh, we have questions wouldn't be a bad summary at all. And the big questions, you know, why are we here? Why is there something rather than nothing? How do we know what we think we know? Um, why does the city of Grand Rapids tear up every single major road artery every single summer? Uh, why does metabolism have to slow down that much after 50? All of those questions reward, of course, honest inquiry and scrutiny, and the courage to take them on cultivates intellectual humility, which is then, from my point of view at least, the cornerstone of wisdom itself. Say, it's not just me, but most of the traditions that are worth um, studying, I, I think. All right, and so my question today is a perennial one, can ethics be taught? And I say, this is somebody who's pointed out to me in the pre-talk, don't you teach ethics? Yeah, like for 30 years. <laughs> but I, I get that question um, maybe more often than you would, you would think. And so I did what any self-respecting ethics professor would do. I went to chat GPT, 
um, <laughs> said, look, you know, can ethics be taught? And it came back and said, well, yeah, but apparently not to you since here you are, you know? <laughs> so, no, I didn't, I didn't actually use it, but it is the big question going forward. How are in, those of us in higher education and, and elementary and secondary education actually going to integrate it? Uh, is it gonna be like a calculator or is it gonna be the end of the world as we know it, like so many other things. Um, all right, so I'll get some of the obvious things out of the way when people ask me, oh, you know, can ethics really be taught? And, and oftentimes, not here, thankfully, but when I give regional talks, uh, hasn't happened so much recently, but for about a 10-year stretch, it was happening that I think it was some kind of church or organization, they were sending an emissary out to keep track of me, and at the end of every talk, no matter what it was, um, this person, usually it was a type, it was kind of a balding middle-aged guy in like bad clothes, who would stand up and say, don't you think ethics and morality is impossible without God? Um, no matter what the talk was on, I can talk about anything, you know. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> anyway, in, in various forms, I've gotten that question over the years, and I don't think they mean to call my entire career into existence. These people do, but not everybody. Um, I think what they mean is, one, um, isn't it kind of a fool's game or fool's errand? At least by the time you get to college, <clears throat> don't people pretty much have their morals or their ethical compass set? What could you possibly offer them? Uh, so part of it is good faith, you know, well-intentioned, this is a waste of time, you know, it's already settled. The other part of it, of course, is dread and fear that, oh my God, maybe you can teach them something about ethics and that's gonna upset the whole apple cart. And I can give you a hundred stories in which uh, that actually proves to be true. The critics do have some legitimate fears there that what we're doing in the university is not so much promoting ideology. I do not like those professors or classes that you know you must agree with me or this is the right way to think. But as Beth said, the opening you know of, of hearts and minds, different ways of looking at things, different perspectives, um, does upset people in the ways that you know being liberated is upsetting to both the liberated and those who are being left behind. And so uh, this is probably at least 15 years ago. I was a young woman in, in an undergraduate class who was really paying attention carefully, which I don't always get, um, but I could tell she was really, she didn't, <clears throat> she didn't talk much, but she was really honed in. And probably around the sixth week or so, she just came up to me and asked me if she, we could talk offline here for a minute or two. And we weren't even talking specifically about the ethics of homosexuality and you know, the rise of the LGBTQ community, which is really becoming you know, much more in the forefront right around that time. But her fear to me was that she, she had come to the conclusion that her entire family and her parents were wrong uh, in their homophobia and she didn't know how to make the choice between what she felt was being true to herself, her acceptance and, and her love for and care for people she knew along with herself, um, and, and an ethical compass that steered her in a way that was much more open and understanding, and leaving her family behind, right? <coughs> Excuse me. And so many, many tears. And one of the things that struck me about that is how difficult is that people accuse folks like me or the university at large these days, you know, well, you're, you're pressing these ideologies and you're upending and you're causing so much pain and suffering for us, right? The parents or the extended family who are sending our kids to school. Like, what about your kids who are, in fact, 
finding their people, finding their community. They're not changing. They're coming into a community or a, a set of ideas or a way of living that resonates with who they in fact feel themselves to be, right? We just don't have that kind of power, right? People, we got 15 weeks with them. People find themselves in the ideas, the material, a particularly empathetic professor perhaps, but we don't change them. What we do is allow them to discover what sort of inklings, feelings, intuitions they might have that, that actually have there's a tradition there that they can slot themselves into and identify with. And so looking at it from both sides, I think, is, is critical. But it, it brings me to what I want to talk about today, which is, can ethics be taught? The short answer is, is yes, but I'm going to complicate it by saying the three, of course, you know, the history of moral philosophy can be taught. But if you really want it to be affective in any sense, in any real sense, um, there are three virtues, I think, that you've got to press on as an ethics teacher or professor. Um, one is curiosity, intellectual curiosity. One is humility. And the, the third and probably most important one is empathy. Uh, and so that makes it even worse because people say, well, you know, can ethics be taught? Yes or no. Uh, should it be taught? Yes or no. Uh, man, you're saying that in a classroom you can help inculcate or develop curiosity uh, humility and empathy. I say, well, if we're not doing that, I, you probably shouldn't pay us. And it's it's amazing to me actually that, you know, uh, I've made a, a living for 30 years asking open-ended, unresolvable questions to young people, and they just let me keep doing it. It's just great. It's <laughs> sort of amazing. I go home. I go, you wouldn't let me. You wouldn't understand, believe what they let me do today. So <laughs> it's really great. But those are hard things to cultivate. Um, curiosity is on the wane, especially intellectual curiosity. There are a number of reasons given for that. Um, social media, one, the whole world's and the narcissism that inculcates. I'm my own world. I answer all my own questions. Uh, the rise of anxiety um, and mental illnesses, one kind or another. Depression, which you lose affect and you don't you be, just end up with less less interest in the world and yourself. Um, and then the other one is printouts, forever been with us, and that is just the uh, studying indifference of people who feel like they have to be studying. <laughs> it's just hard to, to overcome that. Uh, humility. What are the, if I'm honest with myself, what are my real limits? You know, what do I know that I don't know? What don't I know but I don't know? Who's around me to help point that out? Who do I, who do I surround myself with? Who do I read? What, what do I read? Etc. Uh, and then empathy, and if you don't have empathy, you know, there's no point in talking about ethics and morality at, at all. You know? If I truly don't care how any of what I do affects you, um, your behavior, uh, any violence, anything that might be you know, uh, redound to you as an effect, that, you know, without empathy, Franz de Waal, so many other, the primatologists, the, the folks who look at this from a more evolutionary point of view, how do we get to it? So look, you know, without socially cohesive groups helping out one another, you don't get the survival of our species. And the only way you get that kind of cooperation is through us understanding, at least to some degree, what it might be like to be in other people's shoes. Hence, the, one of the reasons I included the Simone Ave uh, quote. So rather than just talk about this, I'm going to give you a demonstration because people say, well, how do you do that? How in the world would you cultivate you know, this kind of thing. So I'll give you two, hopefully, relatively quick examples. Um, 
First one, I used to teach sexual harassment like, like the following. Uh, you're in the classroom, right? And we'd go, we'd go over the sort of the normal stuff. It's quid pro quo, it's hostile, hostile work environment, you know, all the sort of definitions. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Bob, that's really helpful. You know? <laughs> okay, now we're gonna demonstrate it. And I'd pick out some hapless, unsuspecting woman and volunteer her to be sexually harassed, and I would say, with your permission, I'm gonna sort of up the ante, and I'm gonna start by making you know, remarks that could be interpreted in different ways, and I'm gonna get to a point, and you all stop me when you think I've crossed the line, and you know, this is truly sexual harassment. And I'm thinking, oh, good, you know, the women will have a chance to talk about sexual harassment, and you know, the men will have a chance to, you know, see what it's like and you know, weigh in. And what was happening, of course, was that the women were thinking, oh my God, it's like, really, I don't have enough of this in my life? <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> and the men are like, he's not talking about me, so I'm just gonna check out here for a bit. So I got invited to Consumers Energy over there um, in Jackson through a long chain of events to give uh, a talk. And one of the things they wanted us to talk about, in fact, was, the uh, sexual harassment, how to deal with it. And in the middle of doing my usual shtick, I thought to myself, I had a little, little lightning bolt moment. I thought, you know what? I'll sexually harass a man instead of a woman. You know, brilliant. You know, I'll get beaten up and, and learn something. <laughs> so, perfect. So I picked out this guy, you know, and I started doing my shtick, and I really came out pretty strong. I said, you know, I happen to notice you, and you know, there's something about you that just sort of stands out to me. I think we should go have lunch and just see what could happen here, and I just started making more and more, and they got pretty high-level inappropriate comments. And he was a good sport about it, but he was clearly very, very uncomfortable, right? And I, I didn't know what was going to happen. Where does this go? Right? So I finally end it. <clears throat> he sits back down. And a couple of people, thank God, they, they said, look, could we just have a minute to talk about that? I said, I said sure, ask me anything. He said, not you, idiot. He said, amongst ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what happened, um, which was amazing, and it's been replicated, so this is my own little experiment that's been going on now, uh, is that the men got curious. The men turned to the women in the crowd and said, is that what it's like? I felt embarrassed, I felt humiliated, I felt singled out inappropriately, I felt powerless, I felt a whole bunch of stuff. Is that what it's like for you? And they had a conversation among themselves for a while, right? And the men got a little humble. Oh my God, I pre presupposed this, or I thought this, I had these conceived notions of what this would be like, I had no idea, right? And then from that, some, at least for a little while, some increased expressed empathy really sorry that you have to go through this. Maybe we should say more things, maybe. So, so that's kind of how it works. So I, so I, <laughs> I not only have used that at Grand Valley, both at the graduate and undergraduate level, but I wrote it up in an article for our in-house magazine. Uh, the Grand, <laughs> Grand Valley Communications Machine took it and ran with it. They wanted other people to know about it. And the headline was, Grand Valley Professor thinks the best way to teach harassment is to harass people. <laughs> So the next call I got was from the Grand Valley lawyer. <laughs> I said, have you actually read the article where I explain what I do? Well, no, but the title doesn't, doesn't sound good. Doesn't sound promising to all, I gotta say. <laughs> do you have plan B in mind? Uh, no. Uh, so I have carried on with that with a certain amount of caution and lots of contextualization. <laughs> uh, this, the second one, and I use this one all the time and we're writing this one up 
too, because I use it in my consulting work a fair bit. I'll just give you the scenario and then talk a little bit about, again, how those three things, curiosity, humility, and uh, empathy, I think can be cultivated in putting people in what I have come to call affective education. Right? It's one thing for me to stand up here. You listen to me, well, that was mildly amusing, you need to go home. It's like, okay, great, great. So, but if we had the time and you were, you were willing to, I'm gonna do some role play, affective role play with each and every one of you so that you know, in the midst of your shame and humiliation and embarrassment, you're also cultivating curiosity and humility and, um, and empathy. Uh, and I'll tell you just in a second how that, those, all three of those or six of those work together. So here's a scenario that I was involved with as a consultant. I was called a guy Mark, great employee, long period of time in this company. All the supervisors think he's a terrific guy, really, you know, stellar, the sort of guy you want to go above and beyond for, right? Terrific. So they've elevated, elevated him to a kind of foreman position. He's doing well, um, except for about six months ago. And he did something really uncharacteristic. He just missed work for a couple of days, didn't call in, AWOL. You know, people are like, wow, this isn't like you at all. What's going on? So they did the usual management one-on-one thing. They brought him in. Anything going on? Can we help? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'll get it together. You know, I'm really sorry. This job means a lot to me. It's really important. Blah, blah, blah. Great. Okay. And so I'm playing this out, right, either with a manager at a company or usually one of my MBA students, sometimes undergraduate. And they said, okay, you know, so far so good. He's back on track. And then last week, same thing. Goes AWOL, really uncharacteristic. Finally comes back to work, but he's just out of it, where he might well be a danger to himself and, and others. And so you do the same thing. Bring him into your office. And said, so, no, you're the manager, right? So how are you going to play this? And students say a range of things. How many of you think the first thing out of their mouths is something that you would recognize as highly empathetic? in this situation. Here you got a guy, a stellar employee, last six months something's gone wrong, it's in your office, you don't know what it is, and you're trying to figure it out, um, and he finally says to you, you probably don't want to hear this. Now, in the 220 times that I've done this uh, particular example, uh, which I hope to get published sometime soon, <laughs> um, Four people have said, the minute I, in the role play, the minute I say, you probably don't want to hear this, I'm, I'm Mark, I'm in character, they look at me and they say, you're absolutely right, I sure don't want to hear this. <laughs> and I can't move them off it. But the other 216 try to find some way of responding to, to what they're hearing. Um, what we're finding so far is about 24% of the responses are recognizably empathetic in the sense that, oh, I'm really sorry. What, and what happened was his wife left him. Sorry, that's an important piece. <laughs> and he didn't know why. Uh, and she was gone, and that's what happened six months ago. He thought they'd reconciled, he thought everything was fine, but this last week she left, can't find her, no, nothing, nothing, right? So he finally says, you don't wanna hear this. He said, no, no, we really want to, you know, you're a really valued employee, we wanna help you if we can, blah, blah, you know. Okay, well. My, my, I don't even know where she is. My whole life is torn apart. It's upside down. I don't know how people survive this. What in the world do I do? How do people do this? Do you have any experience with this? Oh my God, you know. And so that's what this poor, these poor unsuspecting, whether they're you know, real actual managers or, or students, said play this out. And what we're finding, as I alluded to, about 25% have something like a recognizable 
recognizably empathetic response. Really sorry to hear that. Oh, it just really helps me understand, you know, your troubles at work. How, you know, I'm glad you came to me with this. How can we begin to, to help you? 75% have responses like, please don't bring your personal problems to work. It's really important that you get back on track. Or they pull out the management 101 playbook, which is, okay, we need to get a plan together to make sure that you, know, you can get back to the level that you were, right? Now, there are some people, that's, that's not all 75%, but that falls into that. There's another percentage within that um, immediately go to, do you need time off? Which is, sounds kind of empathetic on the face of it, but if you think about it, it's like, wow, that's a problem I really, really don't want to deal with. <laughs> Would you please get the hell out of my office as quickly as possible? <laughs> and their own dread and anxiety overwhelms any response they might have. The other thing they don't do, and this is where the curiosity comes in, at least part of it, is they say, well, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's nice of you to you know, suggest that they take some time off if that's what they really need. So do you have any idea what they're doing so far in their time off? For example, the two days that they missed, what, are the, what do you think is going on? I don't know. Well, why don't you ask him? Well, what's happening in the time between? Well, it turned out in this guy's case, the one that I worked with, though I could replicate this, you know, a hundred times. Uh, well, me and Jack Daniels are having long conversations. Well, into the night. I said, would you like some time off? I think that would be the worst thing ever for me. Okay. Can we maybe find some other way to reconfigure your work for now and, and you know, go about it that, that way, right? So that kind of curiosity, what's going on? And everybody's deathly afraid of the lawyers and risk and compliance and all that sort of thing. And they wipe the humanity right off the, the boards. Said, it's okay, if it's job related, it's all right. You can ask people how they're doing, are they okay? And so when we debrief on this, you know, there's a lot of conversation about, A, I'm dumbfounded, I just don't know what to do. B, I'm not trained to handle this even if I wanted to, you know? What do people say? And that, again, the natural human inclination to say, oh, I'm really sorry that this is happening to you, somehow only occurs to 25% of the people. It's a pretty large sample size at this point. But I can tell you what can happen and why ethics can be taught, I think, along these lines, as risky and dangerous as it sometimes can be, especially if you get the wrong headline, <laughs> is, is a young man who, by his own admission, this was last fall, by his own admission, this is undergraduate, from the middle of nowhere in, in Michigan, right? He's in his third year, uh, just wants to get a general management degree and hopefully make his life better. And he volunteers to do this. So we work through this particular scenario, what I call the Mark scenario. And he's one of those guys where at the end, where I say, you know, you don't want to hear this. And, oh, no, it's really important. Let us know. And, and, and I say what I say about my wife, you know, in character, leaving me. And he says, you know, I said, if you don't get it together, I, I, said, I don't know if you're going to have a future here. That's the first thing he, he said. And then we did the whole debriefing, you know, how helpful was that? Is that really what you want to say to somebody, you know, who's suffering this tremendous trauma? Worked it through, and we're working through in front of the class, so people are pretty vulnerable, pretty pretty exposed. And you say, well, you know, is that, that's that kind of cruel. I said, no, I, th I think that ups the ante and makes it real for people. You've got to get on board if you're going to sort of think of yourself as somebody who can go out there and do this kind of work. And this kid gnawed on it all semester. And you could tell he was troubled by his own response. And he kept, and this is not unusual in my experience, and he kept coming back to me and kept coming back to me. You know, you need to write this paper. I want to write it on that scenario. Okay, well now you need to write this final paper. I want to write it on this scenario. <laughs> he said, I don't know about you, I'm getting a little tired of this scenario. 
<laughs> but anyway, I said yes to all of that. Sure, you know, forget the rest of it. You know, this is really, I said, he said, I, I can't believe I responded that way. That's not who I want to be. It's not how I want to be responsive to the people I end up working with or for or uh, have people work uh, for me. And at the end of the semester, he wrote this really sort of moving piece on how he thinks or how he thinks he would like to handle that situation like that uh, moving forward. You know, and we're, so we're thinking and, and feeling creatures and any kind of purported ethics instruction that doesn't take the emotional component uh, into consideration, both your own. If you're feeling dread and anxiety, all right, let's just start there. That's, you know, how do, how do people move beyond that so they can hear and attend to, to others? Um, has to be a part of it. So that's, that's where I think the, where the rubber hits the road in terms of can ethics be taught? And I don't always have 20 or 25 minutes to, when people ask me that question, to explain why. <laughs> I think it, it can be taught and should be taught. People are, we're complex, we're, we're messy, right? In that gap between how we would like to think of ourselves and how we actually are, it's sometimes helpful to have some other people come in there and test that out for us. And if you don't have an ethics professor handy, spouses, in my experience, or romantic partners are pretty good for that. Uh, children will certainly keep you remarkably humble, you know, and, and curious, but only to a point, because it's like after 18 years of curiosity, it's like I'm done being interested in you. <laughs> you know, um, the, the end point then, since we're, we're there, for me would be, yeah, you know, not only are, are the, the problems in, in life, should I move the company to Mexico, uh, you know, what should, how should we think about the death penalty, all that stuff is messy and complicated, and people have lots of different points of view on those things, but we're messy. I, th I think my own personal view is that all that stuff is just a reflection of our own internal conflicts, contradictions, right? We have a hard time sorting those out. Um, so, so I'm gonna keep teaching ethics for a little while longer here. Uh, probably get into trouble for doing that. Probably continue to point out the, the gaps between you know, how I think I am and want to be seen and how I actually am. That is the cultivation of curiosity and, and humility. Um, but where that gap is between where we'd like to be, Simone Weil's example of somebody who you know, uh, basically dedicated her life in the, in the service of, of those who were oppressed and marginalized, and then Comte-Smallville's suggesting that we, you know, we interrogate ourselves in the same way. Let's not call that gap sin. That seems to me where a lot of other traditions get in trouble. Let's call that gap an opportunity to cultivate curiosity, humility, and finally, empathy. So, thank you.